Hey, it's Sean. Just a couple of notes before we get started. First, today's episode referenced almost every single species of particle we've talked about so far on this podcast. So if you're new here or just finding yourself a little lost as we talk about the anti-neutrino, you might want to go back and review a few episodes. Specifically, I'd recommend the neutrino episode, of course, the neutral pions, and maybe even the WNZ bosons. They're all pretty quick to listen to anyway. Second, the next few episodes are going to be less directly focused on individual particle species and more focused on big ideas like why is there so little antimatter around us? I'm super excited. But anyway, on with the show. Hey, friends. Welcome to the Field Guide to Particle Physics. This is your informal guide to the subatomic ecosystem that we're all immersed in. Today, we're talking about the anti-neutrino. Are there anti-neutrini? The neutrino is a curious particle. It's as fundamental as the electron or the muon, but it rarely interacts with other particles. This makes the study of these neutrini quite challenging, but also quite interesting. For example, are there anti-neutrini? Well, yes, surely, but perhaps a better question is, what are anti-neutrini? Antiparticles with an electric charge are easy to identify. Positrons and electrons have opposite charges and behave oppositely in most respects. Photons and neutral pions do not have any electric charge. They are their own antiparticle partners. But this isn't always the case with neutral particles. We have antineutrons, after all, and two distinct kinds of neutral kaons, K0 and K0 bar. These are both antiparticle partners for each other. The neutrini, those smallest of the massive matter particles in the standard model, are electrically neutral. So it is natural to ask, are they their own antiparticle? Or are there distinct neutrini and antineutrini? And importantly, how can we tell the difference between the two? The short answer is we don't know yet, end of story. But the short answer is always boring. So without further ado, let's go ahead with the long answer. Neutrons decay to protons by emitting an electron. This is usually called beta decay and is mediated by the W- boson. Other nuclei experience it as well. Detailed studies of beta decay suggests that the neutron should decay into two particles rather than one. That second particle was needed to make sure that energy, momentum, and spin angular momentum was conserved. The neutrino, the small neutral one, was discovered nearly 26 years after their original proposal. Now, electric charge is conserved in beta decay. The uncharged neutron decays into a positively charged proton and a negatively charged electron, and a neutrino. The neutrino also has no electric charge, but it carries away some of the energy and momentum. So far as we can tell, energy, momentum, and spin, like electric charge, is always conserved in nature. Such conservation laws are useful organizing principles for understanding the laws of particle physics. Now, there's another thing that seems to be conserved in nature, usually anyway, and it's the number of leptons in the universe. 
Now, there are actually quantum effects that can change the number of leptons, but in ordinary decays, like beta decay, the number of leptons is conserved. Neutrini, like electrons, muons, and taus, are leptons. Naively, you might think that beta decay creates two leptons, a neutrino and an electron. But the thing is, the neutron actually emits an electron and an anti-electron neutrino. Like electric charge, anti-neutrinos count as minus one lepton. The math also works in reverse. If a nucleus absorbs an electron, which sometimes happens in certain isotopes of vanadium, nickel, and aluminum, it will convert a proton into a neutron and spit out a regular neutrino, conserving the number of leptons. Now, before your eyes glaze over, I know, I know, talking about weird conservation rules like lepton number or lepton flavor number is tricky because it seems like just a bunch of silly gimmicky equations and rules and the details just spiral out of control quickly. But neutrino physics is nothing if not complicated. So let's go ahead and talk some more about the reactions themselves. Each electrically charged lepton, the electron, the muon, and the tau, has its own flavor of neutrino. There's an electron neutrino, a muon neutrino, and a tau neutrino. And each electrically charged anti-lepton has its own anti-neutrino partner. Anti-electron neutrino, anti-muon neutrino, anti-tau neutrino. When a muon decays into an electron, it actually emits three particles. The electron, of course, the anti-electron neutrino, and the regular muon neutrino. And given that there are so many cosmogenic muons around us, muon neutrinos and the anti-electron neutrinos are also fairly ubiquitous down here on Earth. And of course, you might remember the famous experimental result that neutrinos can change their flavor as they move, the solution to the so-called solar neutrino problem. So neutrino flavors can get all mixed up, just like anti-neutrino flavors can get all mixed up. But do neutrini get mixed up with anti-neutrini? They certainly would if they were the same particle, wouldn't they? So let's think about this another way. Let's think about it in terms of annihilation. When an electron and a positron collide, a pair of photons usually comes out the antiparticle partners annihilate into pure electromagnetic energy. What do you suppose happens when a neutrino collides with an antineutrino? Well, a neutrino and a separate antineutrino, assuming it exists, would not annihilate to form photons. They have no electromagnetic charge and therefore no chance of that. They could potentially exchange a Z boson or even a Higgs boson. Although the likelihood of the latter is proportional to the mass of the neutrini involved, which are, of course, very, very small, so it's very, very unlikely. If a neutrino-antineutrino pair of the same flavor smashed against each other violently enough, it's possible that a pair of Z bosons could come out. And if the neutrino were its own antiparticle partner, well, then any two neutrini of the same flavor could do this. Such an annihilation of two regular electron neutrini would be strong evidence that the neutrino is its own antiparticle. But what a challenging experiment that would be. I mean, where do you get dedicated high-energy neutrino beams? Instead of that, physicists are looking for a slightly easier measurement with a clear signature, neutrinoless double beta decay. 
Rarely, nuclei emit two electrons at a time, converting their atomic number by changing two neutrons into two protons by emitting two electrons simultaneously. Germanium-76 and xenon-136 are just a couple of examples of the many nuclei that undergo double beta decay. If neutrini are really their own antiparticle partners, then it's possible that two electrons could come out and a pair of neutrini would annihilate each other just as the decay happens. If no neutrini are produced in such a decay, conservation of momentum suggests that the electrons will be emitted in opposite directions, and conservation of energy suggests that their energy should sum exactly to the difference in the atomic mass of the parent and child nucleus. To date, all double beta decays observed have been consistent with the emission of neutrini. Studies from the experiments like EXO, NEMO, and JURDA have shown that it takes a nuclei over 10,000 times as long to decay without neutrini, at least. But, of course, if it cannot happen, if the neutrino is not its own antiparticle partner in any capacity, then it never will. But the search is on. The Kyore and Kamlan Zen experiments are still taking data, and the future Nexo experiment is still under development. Finally, we know that neutrini have tiny masses, super tiny, a million times smaller than the electron at least. If neutrini are their own antiparticle partners, then we have a special kind of mass for them called the Majorana mass. If antineutrini are distinct particles from neutrini, then their mass might as well be a Dirac mass, which is the usual kind of mass that leptons pick up in the standard model. You know, like electrons and muons and so on. This distinction between the two is of course kind of reductive. There is no reason why they couldn't have both a Majorana mass and a Dirac mass. In fact, if they do have both, then there is a very natural explanation for why the neutrino mass is so small compared with the other fundamental particles. If the Majorana mass is really, really big, say associated to some complicated physics we don't yet understand at really high energies, and the Dirac mass is normal by comparison to the other particles, like a few thousand electron volts or something, the combination of the two masses we experience actually appears as the ratio of the two rather than the sum. This is the famous seesaw mechanism. Neutrini are the only electrically neutral elementary fermions known to science. Quarks all have electric charges. Electrons, muons, taus all do too. It is perhaps no surprise that neutrino physics is uniquely complicated. And if there's one thing particle physics enjoys, it's being complicated. This has been an installment of the Field Guide to Particle Physics, a copyrighted production of the Poseidon Institute. We're in our third season, and it's all about antimatter. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this episode interesting, fascinating, pleasantly confusing, or even just useful, please make sure to subscribe for more and pass it around. For a full, free online copy of the Field Guide, please visit our website at Poseidon.org or follow the Poseidon Institute on Instagram. At the Poseidon Institute, we are on a mission to build and share physics knowledge without barriers. Come learn with us. <laughs>